Okay, this morning's Bible reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The parable of the two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the last couple Sundays, we have been working our way through Matthew chapter 21. We've seen Jesus beginning the the last week of his public ministry on earth. On Palm Sunday, as it's come to be known, um, we we looked at that two weeks ago, Jesus walked into Jerusalem publicly declaring, or he rode in on a donkey, publicly declaring that he was the coming king, the, the Messiah, God's king. And we saw that his first order of business last week was to enter into the temple, the place of God's worship, and to cast out, to drive out the false and the fruitless religion that he found there, the merchants and the money changers. And he restored the temple at that time for a short period of time as the place where people could receive help and restoration from God. And now that was enough, that alone was enough to provoke the religious leaders of the day. They were incensed. But as we continue the story, we find that Jesus doesn't shrink from confrontation. In fact, he leans in to the confrontation. Because our reading this morning takes place the very next day in the morning, according to uh, verse 23, Jesus returns to the same place, the temple courts. He sits down to teach, because that's how rabbis always taught. And he begins 
to teach there in front of all the people that he just offended yesterday. And when the chief priests and the elders and the people see what's going on in what they consider their turf, they're again enraged. And they come to Jesus with what sounds like a question, but is actually an accusation. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Or to put it another way, who do you think you are? What are you doing? We're the ones that run the temple. You can't just come in here. You don't have any authority here. You know how long it took to clean up the mess you made yesterday? How long it took to convince the merchants to come back? You were taking praises from children like you were the Lord God himself. And now you just waltz in here and you start teaching again. Where do you get the nerve? That's the sense of the question. Their question was actually opposition, accusation. And before we come to how Jesus responded, just recognize that this kind of hatred and opposition to the Lordship of Jesus Christ was so often what he received from religious people both now and then, both then and now. Send a preacher to to Hennessy Junction in Causeway Bay. Put them on a soapbox to, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that he alone determines where people stand with God and why they stand with God in that way. And most people are just going to walk by thinking, oh, it's a madman ranting, I'll ignore him. But send the same man to preach the same message at the center of a a long-established and culturally important church, and sparks are going to fly. If he stands up and preaches that Jesus Christ is the only Lord, and that salvation is by grace through faith in him alone, and that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags in comparison. Just clear biblical truth. If that's his message, the man will make enemies before he even sits down. Why? Well, it's because there are alternative authorities in many churches. Alternative authorities that have been established. If Jesus is the Lord with all authority in heaven and on earth, then the ones with the honorific titles, the ones with the fancy robes and hats, the ones with the big bank accounts, and the ones with a long history of influence in this church, they suddenly have no authority. If he has all authority, The religious bigwigs immediately recognize that the message of Jesus as Lord is a threat. It is a danger to them. And the vitriolic campaigns against the messenger will come. They do come. 
That's part of why sermons in the world's cathedrals, wherever you find them, are so often insipid. They're weak. They're platitudes. Because there's entrenched power in those places. And if Jesus is Lord, well, people don't like that message. There is only room for one Lord. So when the chief priests and the elders came with their defiant question, Jesus answered in the way that he so often did answer, with a question of his own. But we must see that Jesus is not dancing around the issue here. He's addressing it head on. And he's cleverly exposing their key concern. This is the first major point I think we must get from this, that self-interest, rather than a concern for the truth, is what leads to agnostic unbelief. Self-interest, rather than a concern for the truth, is what leads to agnosticism, agnostic unbelief. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question, If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? John the Baptist was a widely known figure. He was widely held to be a genuine prophet of God. In chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, we read that all the people of Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to him to be baptized. That's all the country folks and all the city folks. They were coming to him, streaming out to the desert. Matthew's Gospel twice identifies him as the one who the prophet Malachi was writing about when he said, One like Elijah will come. And he will prepare the way of the the Lord. Jesus himself spoke of John among his followers and said he was the greatest prophet that had ever been born of a woman. This was not a difficult question that Jesus is asking. And yet his opponents struggle to answer it. But pay close attention to why. Why do they struggle? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. See, the problem with saying that John is a prophet sent by God, is that he so clearly and consistently in his ministry pointed to Jesus and his greater authority. He spoke of one coming after him whose sandals he wasn't even worthy to untie, one who would uh, take the great threshing um, fork and separate the wheat from the chaff and throw the chaff into the furnace to be burned. And when Jesus came to be baptized by John, John pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And when John was in prison, he sent his followers just to double check to make sure that his teaching that Jesus was the Messiah wasn't mistaken. Even Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of the area, the the wicked man, he got mixed up between John and Jesus. He had John killed, and then he thought Jesus was John come back from the dead because their ministries were so tightly linked. So if they said that John was a prophet of God, then they would in effect be saying that Jesus received his authority from God too. They would no longer be able to oppose him because they would be admitting that he was right and what he was doing was what he was meant to be doing. The prophet Malachi, this this verse that Matthew's gospel keeps referring back to, Malachi 3 verse 1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. That's Jesus. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. If John, then Jesus. But if they said that John was merely speaking from his own opinion, human opinion, well then they would have a different problem. They would be able to deny Jesus' authority, but what would other people think? What would people think of them? The people would turn against them because they held John to be a prophet. They would lose their standing in the eyes of the crowd. The question that Jesus asks exposes what they're really upset about. Their opposition to Jesus doesn't come out of a concern for the truth, as though they just can't be sure and maybe they just need a little bit more evidence and and then they could believe. No, it's out of self-interest. They want to preserve their own authority so they can't acknowledge his. They don't want people to be upset at them, so they can't deny his. The scriptures, the testimony of John the Baptist, the the miracles and the teaching of Jesus, uh, and the, the things that he was doing right before their own eyes, they all point in one direction, but they don't want to accept the consequences of the truth. They can't see because they don't want to see. Their unbelief is deliberate and determined. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now this should help us to understand so much unbelief in our own day. There will be some people who don't know anything about Jesus. And that's why Christians, like each one of us who would call ourselves Christians, must carry the good news out and tell people something of the truth about Jesus, that he is the the Lord of heaven and earth. And as soon as a person hears just the smallest bit of evidence for that, They should say, 
if they're honestly interested in the truth, I must find out more. I must know more about him. Jesus claims to be God in the flesh, come to save his people for eternity. If there is evidence for that, and there is evidence for that, then people should want to know, shouldn't they? But more often, the response to the message of Jesus is a shrugging, I don't know. Hey, I'm glad you have faith. I wish I could have faith, but I'm not so sure. And some people who know quite a lot about Jesus never move beyond, I I don't know. I don't know. Not sure what I think. If what we read here is a true reflection of the human heart, then the agnostic, I don't know, attitude that most people have toward Jesus is not due to a a lack of evidence or good arguments. Most people have never even looked into it enough to know what the evidence and the arguments are. The agnostic unbelief is out of self-interest. It's deliberate and determined opposition to Jesus' authority so that other authorities can remain in control. If he has authority, then I don't. If he is the Lord, then I'm not. If Jesus is Lord, then we have to listen to what he says about how we should live. We have to obey him. We have to submit our own will to his will. And that could be very costly indeed. So our hearts naturally say, don't look at the claims. Don't take his commands too seriously. Surely there isn't much evidence And we use questions to mask our opposition to God's king. Because if we did start to live as though he really is the Lord of all, what would other people think? It might cost us our reputation. Other people might look down on us thinking that we're simple-minded and naive. It might cost us our friendships because it might mean that our behavior had to change. It might cost us our jobs because we'd have to take moral stands on tricky issues. So in the short term, it's easier to shut our eyes to the evidence, to shut our ears to the arguments, to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But of course, the evidence is in. And in the long run, responding to Jesus with, I don't know, is a disastrous strategy. For as John the Baptist said, and as the scriptures declare, we will all one day stand before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, 
he will be our judge. And on that day, rival claims of authority will be like chaff in the wind. Blown away by the winds of judgment. Then there's not going to be any other opinions to be heard or concerned about. Because on that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether that's in fearful recognition or great praise, everyone's going to acknowledge it. And the only one who's going to be agnostic on that day is Jesus himself when he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And so agnostic unbelief, it really works against your self-interest and mine. This is not where we want to stay. Not in the long run. But that's not the end of the story here. Jesus offers them a message of grace here, if only they can receive it. And that's what the the parable that he tells them is all about. We're not left under the threat of judgment without a hope of escape. So the second major point we've got to see in this parable is God is patient with the ungodly. He grants time for repentance. God is patient with the ungodly, granting them time to repent. The father represents God in verses 28 to 32. The first son, who says he won't do the father's will, but ends up going and and doing it, he symbolizes the tax collectors and the prostitutes that have turned from their former way of life and followed Jesus right from the beginning of his ministry. We, we read in Luke's gospel that they were out there being baptized by John the Baptist. And we know that they then came to Jesus later on. The second son, who says that he will do the Father's will, but then doesn't, symbolizes the religious leaders who have just kept practicing their religion in the way that deliberately opposes Jesus. Jesus says to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Here is the good news. God is always, always, always ready to receive repentant sinners. It doesn't matter what a person has done in the past. The only question is, do they now repent and come to Christ? Now. The tax collectors and the prostitutes were the paradigm of wretched sinners in Jerusalem at that time. But through faith in Christ, a tax collector that is, Matthew, became an apostle and the author of our gospel. Because of her faith in Jesus, a prostitute poured precious oil 
on him, anointing him before his death. She washed his feet with her tears and her hair. And Jesus says, because of your great faith, everywhere where my message is proclaimed, you will be given a place of honor, a prostitute, honored for the rest of history. Jesus does not only welcome metaphorical sinners. He welcomes actual, notorious sinners. And he welcomes them into the family of God when they came to him with repentance and faith. After last week's sermon, which had much to say about repentance, someone who was here asked about whether repentance was really something that Christians needed to do. Maybe repentance at conversion makes sense because you're turning from your former life, you're beginning a life with Christ, so that makes sense, but Christians are already believing in Christ. We're already walking with Him. Should we really go around beating ourselves up, feeling bad for our sin? And my answer to that was that no, we shouldn't go around beating ourselves up and feeling bad all the time. But yes, Christians must live lives of constant repentance. Repent is just a word that means to turn. It means when we repent, we're going one direction and then we turn around and go the other or a different direction. We turn away from sin toward Christ. That's all repentance is. And the whole of the Christian life has to be full of that kind of turning. Over and over again, turning to Jesus saying, you know better than me. You have more authority than I do. Your ways are better than mine, Jesus. And that should be an everyday practice for Christians. Because the natural tendency of the human heart, of my heart and of yours, is to establish another authority. Whether it's our own or the opinions of the people around us. We think it's in our self-interest. But it's to our great detriment. But men and women of faith keep turning back to Christ all the time. And if we do that, we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to feel bad. We should be wonderfully freed by repentance. Because God doesn't respond to us on the basis of how bad we feel. He responds to us because he's merciful and loving and kind and welcoming and glorious. God always accepts sinners who turn to him, every time. And he uses our stories to convict other people who are deliberately opposed to him. That's the lesson of this parable. The chief priests and the elders 
should have seen God's incredible display of mercy to the, the tax collectors and to the prostitutes. And that should have made them realize this is God's Messiah. If they can turn to him and find help and, and healing, surely we should be doing the same. Instead, they opposed out of self-interest. So this church and every true church should be full of examples of sinful people who keep turning back to Jesus in faith, only to find more and more and more grace. It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. That's good news. That is such good news for miserable offenders like us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you love us, that you welcome us, that as we humble ourselves and turn to you in repentance and faith for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, you offer forgiveness. You offer freedom from slavery to sin. You offer a new life and a new way. Thank you that that's not just a a past reality for those of us who are Christians. It's the current reality. We can keep turning to you and find more grace, more mercy available. Please give us soft hearts. Hearts that respond to your message, that respond to Jesus' authority with repentance and faith, with obedience, with love for, for you and and love for our neighbors. Lord, we pray that as people see that reality in us, that it might convict them that there's hope for them as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.